Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So Andy Warhol, who carried his Polaroid camera everywhere he went, once said about photographs, quote, the best thing about a picture is that it never changes, even when the people in it do, end quote. The groundbreaking and legendary photojournalist and filmmaker Gordon Park said, quote, the subject matter is so much more important than the photographer, end quote. Well, my guest today may have some feelings about those two sentiments. Andrew D. Bernstein is recognized as an all-star in sports photography. The Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame named him a 2018 Kurt Gowdy Award recipient, acknowledging his contributions to basketball media. Andy, as he is often called, is the official photographer for the LA Lakers, Clippers, Kings, and Sparks, as well as the official photographer for Staples Center, now the Crypto.com Arena and Microsoft Theater. I'm going to get stuck on that crypto thing. It's still Staples to me, but I don't want to get Andy in trouble with his with his employer, so I'll try to come. I'll try to use the proper name, but Staples just conjures up a lot for me. He is in his 33rd consecutive season serving as the longest tenured NBA league photographer. He's been the selected home team photographer for numerous NBA championship games. In fact, he has covered 40 NBA finals and 38 all-star games as the senior NBA photographer. His portfolio includes hockey, the Olympics, rock stars, and so much more. But I think his passion is, it's safe to say, is basketball. In 2018, Andy collaborated with five-time NBA champion, the legendary Kobe Bryant, on the worldwide best-selling book, The Mamba Mentality, How I Play, which is a look back through Andy's lens at Kobe's 20-year career. Andy's unique rapport with the icons of sports he photographs have afforded him an unparalleled access and lasting friendships. He is the host of the podcast Legends of Sport, which can be found on iHeart and YouTube. It is such an honor to have as a guest today a star among stars, Andy Bernstein. Andy, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Well, Brad, it, uh, it's so great to, first of all, see you again. I haven't seen you in I don't know how long, man, and I miss you. Um, I know you moved back east, and um, it's just great to connect, and I, I love what you're doing on the podcast. Thank you for that, that wonderful intro. Appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure, man. Yeah, thank you, too, Andy. Yeah, it's been a couple of years, man. I, I, we left L.A. in 2019 mm. and haven't been to a game since. So, uh, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm used to seeing you not too far away. <laughs> so, Andy, we kick things off with what I call our short order questions. Just a couple of things to get us rolling. So I'll fire a few at those of those at you. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What music are you listening to these days? That's an easy question, man. Um, for, <laughs> I'm a Springsteen fanatic. Um, I won't say fan. I will say fanatic, nut, whatever. Um, this is my, where I am right now. We're recording kind of my sports area. But if you went on the other side of the wall, it would be an homage to the boss. Photos and all kinds of stuff from, from my 
40 plus years of following him. So I got a lot of Bruce on the playlist. Also have a 13 year old daughter who's exposing me to some wonderful music. Um, she happened to have been in a Billie Eilish uh, video, which was amazing with her choir that she sings with. Um, so, you know, I'm getting kind of the best of both worlds, but I'm kind of a classic rock guy when it comes down to it and throw in a little disco every once in a while to, you know, keep the, the heart pumping. <laughs> a little disco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Did you happen to catch any of uh, Springsteen and Barack Obama's uh, podcasts or conversations on uh, Spotify? Oh, absolutely. I gobbled it up. I, I saw, I think it was six, I believe. And... Uh, my sister bought me the wonderful book, which I'm going to plug. I have nothing to do with this book, but I absolutely love it. Um, there's a book uh, about the podcast and about their relationship. Wonderful, wonderful book with amazing photos. I mean, Barack Obama's personal photographer in the White House, Pete Souza, is represented there. Danny Clinch, all my friends who have been shooting Bruce, you know, since the beginning of time. Um, it's a great uh, tribute to both of them. And the fact that they they had this friendship and bonding is, is unique, but it's not that unique when you really listen and you see where these guys came from and what they're all about. No, not at all, man. And I just felt so such a connection to the periods of time they talked about, the, the you know, Barack listing his playlist mm -hmm. with songs that I loved and just the things that they had in common. It yeah. was really a cool bond and, and great conversations to, to hear those guys together. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, Andy, what's your morning routine? Well, you know, we have an eighth grader, so got to get up for her in the morning, usually around 6.30, um, up and at him. And uh, she's pretty self-sufficient, our little Mimi. She takes care of herself, gets her lunch ready for school. But uh, got to have that first cup of coffee to just just get functioning. <clears throat> usually watch the Today Show every, every morning, um, catch up on the headlines and stuff. You know, I live in Southern California, so even this time of year, it's, it's gorgeous outside. The sun is coming up. And uh, get a little time with, with my wife in the morning to just catch up on stuff. She's, she's a lawyer, so she's getting ready for work. Um, finally back in the office after, I think she was probably 18 months out of the office working from home. My stepdaughter is a Ph.D. student at USC, so she's home living with us right now. So uh, it's a little chaotic, but, but wonderful family time in the morning. And, um, and then I, you know, I usually uh, get myself together after everybody leaves and I'm at my office where, where I am now, which is a couple of miles from my house. I'm usually here by about 9.30. Nice, man. It sounds a little chaotic, but family chaos yeah. in, in good a stuff. good way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you and, you and your wife have a favorite L.A. restaurant? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a great question. We, we love the restaurant called The Raymond in Pasadena. Um, it's a beautiful restaurant. Sure. Legendary. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's an old uh, craftsman house. It's sort of carved into, I think it's like carved into sort of a freeway off-ramp almost, you know. But um, it's a little hideaway, wonderful bar, wonderful restaurant. Um, you know, Paul Martins was here. We, we like Paul Martins, but they unfortunately closed. But Gaucho Grill is open um in pasadena which is wonderful um hmm. there's a there's a few other ones that we've been to i, I really like javier's in century city that's it's a great place to have a, a lunch meeting and it's kind of open air which is kind of helpful in in our times of covid um yeah we 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 bounce around from from restaurant to restaurant but those are kind of the go-to ones 
Nice, yeah. nice. Well, Raymond's might have been around when you were in school in Pasadena, although you might not have had the uh, <laughs> the discretionary income. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the restaurant we used to go to at Art Center in Pasadena was called Ernie's Junior's Tacos. Right. There's still an there Ernie's go. Junior, I think, in 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 Century. And I'm sorry, in Studio City, or Burbank. Um, I went there a few weeks ago. Um, but it literally was the only restaurant in what's now called um, Old Pasadena, Old Town, mm-hmm. which was which was really a, a depressing area when I was in school in the, in the mid to late 70s, quite honestly. Um, but it's been completely redone. The same developer that developed uh, the Third Street Promenade in, in uh, Santa Monica developed it. And the Pasadena Historical Society insisted that one of the one of the caveats was that they had to keep the facades of all the original buildings and they cleaned them up and they're beautiful and so it it looks like old pasadena but you know once you go in a restaurant or into a store obviously it's modern and it's it's wonderful it's a wonderful area but but like like i said we had that one joint that we would go to for lunch you know you get like a taco lunch for like 350 you know with a soda <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much it. When we when we used to drink soda. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um so so tell me, Andy, I mean, forty championship games, you know, almost as many all star games. This may be tough for you, but can you recall the greatest game that you've worked? Well, the greatest game, Brad, and I, I don't know if you were there. I think you were there in your normal seat, but uh it has to be Kobe's final game, August thirteenth, twenty sixteen. Mamba drops 60 points, drops the mic, you know, Mamba out. And that was the end of that 20-year career. But um, I can't imagine, you know, yes, it, was, you know, it wasn't a finals game. It wasn't, didn't mean anything, quite frankly, the standings or anything. But having been around him, with him, embedded with him for 20 years, to see him, um, that exclamation point on his career, I mean, you know, we're in Hollywood, you know, you spent a lot of time in Hollywood. Nobody on, in anywhere in Hollywood could have written that script. You know, here, no. here's a guy three years after blowing out his Achilles, right? And, you know, any, any other guy would have walked away after that probably. Already had five championships, God knows how much money in the bank. But he would not, absolutely would not let an injury define when he would leave the game. And then to see him accomplish that, literally with no lift left in his legs, but some divine intervention, you know, that ball was going in every time he shot it. That's right. It, yeah. it, it, was, it was unbelievable. I spent the whole day with him from early in the morning. I went down to Newport to his office. He was having meetings at 9 o'clock in the morning in his office on his last game. Um, came up to L.A. with him and, and, and spent the whole, obviously, behind the scenes preparing and after the game. And it was a magical, magical night. So I, I, without hesitation, I have to point to that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one, Andy. And I'm, I'm going to come back and spend some time on Kobe and your relationship with Kobe, which was really unique. Mm-hmm. And um, I watched a few things, the two of you together, mm-hmm. and uh, the things he had to say about you, the observations. We'll, we'll come back to that. So give me a moment. Yeah. Um, where have you been? Or I'm sorry, let me repeat that. Where have you not been that's high on your list to travel to? Well, I had never been to South America um, in all the travels I've done for the NBA, you know, multiple times around the world. Never, never went to South America until I met my wife, 
um, about, what, 17 years ago, and she's from Argentina, you know, living in L.A. So I, I got exposed to the Argentine culture. Um, uh, her family has a, has a place in Punta del Este, Uruguay, which is amazing. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's an incredible mm. beach community, has an artist community right next to Punta, which is really amazing. Um, you know, the food, the culture, um, everything about it. So that that was that was very eye-opening and wonderful for me. There's a couple of places. I, I've been having some, like, weird hankerings to go to to, <laughs> to Antarctica, only because I got to tell you, my good friend Nick Oot, Nick is one of the most famous photojournalists in history. Nick shot the famous... Um, napalm girl photo in, during the Vietnam, wow. Vietnam War. Okay, Pulitzer Prize winner. Nick just spent, I think, two weeks on a ship in Antarctica. I don't really like the cold, quite honestly, but the penguins were pretty cool. <laughs> 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 but I'll tell you, the one place, Brad, that has always stuck in my craw has been New Zealand for some reason. And nobody's ever asked me this question, but I got to tell you, every time I drive into LAX, you know, Air New Zealand, this is a weird thing, but Air New Zealand is in Terminal 2, and it's the first plane I always see. It's like there's an Air New Zealand plane. Somehow it's calling me. So I'll. It's uh, an omen. Yeah, it is, right? So at some point, <laughs> I got to get down there. I've heard only great things about, you know, both islands down there. So I uh, mm -hmm. got to get down there. Well, somehow, and I have no idea how I know this, but if you ever do go there, one of the Commodores lives in New Zealand. So awesome. <laughs> You might have to ask around. We'll, we'll check with Lionel before you go. I will be knocking on doors, you. man. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, best advice you've been given. Anybody ever pull your coat and tell you something really that stuck with you? Oh, yeah. Where do you want to start? Um, the, the top shelf for me has got to be don't let anybody blow out your light. Um, I have a very close friend uh, who has helped me in many, many areas of my life. And uh, when I was going through the toughest of times, he would just he would just shake me and say, look, man, you know, you own your power. Don't let anybody blow out your light. And uh, yeah. I try to I try to pass that on, try to kind of live that in my life, kind of pass that on to my kids, too. I have three adult kids and, um, you know, I see them struggling and I see how other people how what other people might be thinking, feeling about them or myself, even, you know, my wife and I have this conversation too. Um, can't let that influence what I, how I feel about myself. So that's basically sort of the subtext of, of don't let anybody blow out your light is not let anybody really what anybody else thinks about you influence how you feel about yourself. So that's, that's my bottom line advice. That's a great one, man. I love that. You know, my wife, um, you know, I, I often call her my Angelo Dundee. You remember <laughs> Angelo and Sugar Ray's face in the corner? You're blowing it, kids. You're blowing it when he again turns. Yeah. And yeah. she gets me with that sentiment when I tend to get down on myself mm -hmm. or I didn't do something as well as I thought I should have. And it bums me out. Yeah. You know, she she can do that to me. So it's, it's a version of what you said. But uh, yeah. that, that inspiration that stays with you is, is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um Last one of these, who past or present, Andy, would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Mm. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, to have to, to sit down and have dinner with Bruce and Patty, uh, Bruce Springsteen and his wife, Patty Scalfa, would be amazing. Um, Barack and Michelle Obama, amazing. Um, 
in the sports world, there's a lot of people um, that have crossed my path, your path. Uh, you know, your good friend Denzel, um, such a fascinating guy to me. Um, man, I, I, I can't really think of one person in sports that I haven't talked to that I really would love to. I, I guess Sugar Ray Leonard, I, I'm really fascinated by him. I shot him very early in his career and I see what he's doing now. Um, would love to sit down with Tom Brady. Honestly, maybe he'll have a little more time now. You never know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, those those are the ones, man. Um, that would be a heck of a dinner party. I'd say, yeah. yeah. Let me let me cater it for you, so at least I get to hey. participate some way or another. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's jump in, Andy. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. You know, um, thank God. Uh, COVID hasn't hit me yet, personally. Um, everyone in my family's had it, and somehow I've been dodging and weaving, doing rope-a-dope or something. I don't know. I might actually have had it and not known it, but um, I, I've stayed healthy. Um, things are, are good, Brad. They were not good for a while. You know, on March 10th, 2020, we were going gangbusters. You know, my, my company's really busy. Like you said in the intro, we do everything that happens in the arena and the theater next door, sometimes multiple events in a day, games, you know, concerts, all that stuff. March 11th, <laughs> the next day, literally everything stopped and didn't come back. I mean, it really has not come, didn't come back until basically this past September. Um, you know, I was fortunate. I was able to go to the NBA bubble. You know, I hadn't worked by that point. That was in late August, so I hadn't worked in five and a half months. Um, so I went to the NBA bubble for 53 days. That's a whole other podcast, <laughs> but that was quite the experience. Um, I was thankful that, you know, the NBA offered for me to do that and that I was able to do that and stayed healthy throughout it. And we treaded water, quite frankly, um, had to let, you know, a couple of people go, which was really sad. Uh, PPP helped for a little bit, but, um, the blessing to the whole thing, Brad, I have to tell you is that. I was able in my own mind and in my own sort of physical energy to, to sort of shift to everything I've been putting a little bit on the back burner with Legends of Sport, which is the platform that supports the podcast. So I was actually in this space doing two podcasts a week by myself. My producer, Veronica, obviously wasn't coming in. She was working from home. And I didn't see Veronica, I think, for... I think it was almost a year we didn't see each other in person, <laughs> which was amazing. Um, and then, you know, we were developing things that just came to a screeching halt when COVID hit. But we were able, I, myself and my partners were able to kind of put our energy towards that because I didn't have any photography work to do. So I was trying to, you know, I was trying to make a positive out of a really, really tough negative. Um, financially, you know, we were able to hold on, which was good. And, uh, you know, now we're back and we're back almost a hundred percent. Um, still a little hiccups here and there and, but, you know, everybody's working again. You know, my crew is happy and, uh, I'm able to pay their bills, you know, and pay them. And, and I'm happy about that. That's awesome, man. Yeah. It's, you know, as we come out of this, hopefully that we're coming out of it now, and, you know, we look at the collateral damage all around, you know, the, the stories are just going to continue to, to unfold and this thing is going to reverberate for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, it affected, you know, a lot of levels of life. So um, good for you. And, um, 
you're, you're, I'm happy to hear that things are, are on the upswing. Mm-hmm. So, Andy, I want to I want to kind of start on a little bit of a funny note because I want to talk about how uh, how we met. And, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, I've been friends with Denzel. Our, our friendship goes friendship goes back to New York. We're both New Yorkers. So I've been mm-hmm. friends with, with Denzel about 30 years. And uh, he's had floor seats going back to the forum and now Staples or Crypto uh, Arena. It's a, hey, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. It's, it's going to take some work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have the good fortune, as you mentioned, of joining him, uh, you know, for quite a few games when uh, his wife wouldn't want to go or one of his kids wouldn't want to go. He would give me a call and I'd always be ready. Imagine that mm-hmm. Denzel asking <laughs> to sit on the floor with him. Yeah, right. I think I can make that. Um and I'm not quite sure how we met, but you and I, but I would see you on the floor positioned, you know, underneath the basket and just watch you work. And along with a line of other photographers there, but you were you were constantly present. And at one point we said hello. And the next thing I knew, pictures start showing up in my email from your office and the great shots of my wife and I, my, my son and I. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, what a great way to make friends, man. Who's not going to love having somebody take cool pictures of them? You have a lot of friends, Andy? I have a lot of friends, Brad. And you know what? I, I don't ask for anything other than you being happy to have gotten my photos. Honestly, I, I, it, it thrills me. I, I have witnessed um, and documented families like the Jackson family, for example, that sits, you know, about eight seats down you know, uh, up, up the sideline from where Denzel's seats are. I mean, I've been photographing that family, Steve and Ellen and their four kids since they, they were little kids at the forum, you know, now they're all adults. They have their own kids. They're married, you know, and it's a thrill for me. Um, I mean, I can mention so many other people that, you know, and your audience might not know, but probably have seen on TV at Laker game, Norman Mary Pattis, who sit, you know, dead center right next to the Laker bench, been fixtures, you know, the, the late Joe Smith, um, one of my dearest friends who uh, was a legend in the music business. I mean, Lou I, Adler. I, yeah, Lou Adler and, and Jack, of course. I mean, you know, I, I remember shooting Jack and Lou and they were up they're sitting up in the stands in the 84 finals in Boston Garden, just getting hammered by the by the Celtic <laughs> fans and Jack just giving it right back to them, you know, and it's a thrill for me. I mean, and let's not forget the the super fan himself jimmy goldstein who has been a fixture way honestly way before i started i mean jimmy's been watching nba games for 55 years something like that um has four seats for lakers and clippers and you see him at every and everywhere every (laughs) single game i mean this guy I, i don't even want to venture a guess how old jimmy is but during the playoffs, literally every night he's in a different city because he absolutely loves the game. And one of the most wonderfully warm, friendly, kind of humble guys, honestly, who lives in probably the most iconic house I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, Incredible. Yeah. yeah. So it, that's kind of a, you know, been kind of a, I don't know, a great sort of sidebar to my being there on the baseline, being able to help document people's experiences going to games. And it's just been fun for me. Well, I want to I want to ask you how, um, you know, you, you got your start. But really, when did it when did it start to come together for you, Andy? When did 
you feel like, you know, you were locked in and this is where you were going to be? I mean, you've been at Staples for so long. When, when did that success first start to happen for you? Well, I, I got to go back, Brad, to when I first started the, my love for photography when I was 14. My dad bought me a camera. You know, I'm a Brooklyn guy, as you know. And uh, I had never been to any of the national parks. You know, I never, I don't think I'd ever been west of uh, New Jersey, you know, at that point, you know, honestly. <laughs> and uh, so my dad surprised me with a camera. We're going to go see all these national parks for a couple of weeks and make, have this great father-son trip. It was wonderful. I'd always been a sports nut. Um, shortest kid in my block, so I was, you know, never going to be Bud Harrelson, who was my hero growing up oh, with the Mets. the Mets. I was never going to be Rod Gilbert, who was my hero for the Rangers, you know. Um, didn't really go to Knicks games or wasn't into bas pro basketball, but I played a lot of basketball. I mean, we had a hoop on our garage and we, you know, had the schoolyard and all that stuff. Um, so as, you know, you know, made my way to college, ended up at the University of Massachusetts, and didn't know if I wanted to be a, um, a photojournalist or possibly a documentary, um, you know, cameraman, videographer, cinematographer. I didn't know, but I knew I wanted to do something visual. Um, and I gravitated to the, uh, the Daily Collegian newspaper, which is our campus newspaper. And I just fell in love with that whole vibe of doing assignments and being under deadline. And by the way, seeing my byline, which everybody else on campus saw under a photo on the front page or on the sports page or whatever. And I got my feet wet, you know, learning to shoot everything. You know, I was shooting everything from, you know, concerts and, and theater shows to sporting events to portraits. You know, Jimmy Carter came through our campus, you know, in my, I think in my sophomore year his presidential campaign you know, I had a front page picture of him um, you know so I, I needed to at that point about halfway through UMass I, I had to make a decision that if I'm gonna make him a career out of photography in some way because by that point I decided on photography um, I had up the game I had to go to a school that really could teach me everything you know from the ground up pretty much technically um, history-wise the science of it the art of photography <clears throat> so I made my way to Pasadena California you know which to me was like going to the moon um, <clears throat> and I went to a very prestigious school called Art Center College of Design where I was told literally from day one that I would pick the wrong school and why are you here you know <laughs> like we don't do sports photography we don't do photojournalism here you know you you do advertising you're gonna do commercial photography you're gonna do fashion shoot cars make a lot of money open a studio and i'm like no i don't think so and so i was discouraged literally brad from day one but i had two teachers that didn't let me give up and uh, these two teachers are still in my life uh, still mentors still wonderful friends and you know brooklyn guy had that like brooklyn moxie edge chutzpah whatever you want to call it and you know, you know, you're in New York. If somebody tells you you can't mm -hmm. do something, you're absolutely going to prove them wrong. You're going to prove them wrong before you prove it to yourself, you know. So yeah. I persevered and doors started opening. Um, I got introduced to some Sports Illustrated photographers by one of my teachers. And that really just opened the floodgates for kind of learning on the job. But I was also getting that technical training at school, which was really important. And I, you know, still use that today, obviously, it's second nature to me. And, uh, yeah, I just decided, Brad, I got to marry these two passions together. You know, I had photography here. I had sports there. What better way to 
to go to a game than like sit courtside or be on, you know, next to the dugout or, you know, be on the sideline of the football game or whatever and actually get paid to be there. So <laughs> I always joke with, with people, you know, my friends, Sharon and Joe Hernandez, you know them. They, they sit behind me at mm -hmm. Laker games. They own Melissa's Produce. Some two of the most wonderful, generous people. They sit behind me. You, you know what those seats cost, at Laker games, right? And I always mm -hmm. joke with them. I said, "I have a better seat than you do," <laughs> and, and somebody's <laughs> actually paying me to be here. You know, yeah, yeah. it's kind of funny. I always make a point to uh, to buy the popcorn <laughs> yeah. when Denzel and I are at the game. <laughs> the least I can do, exactly. you know, Andy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's funny, man, because, you know, you and I have a UMass connection. I, I went to UMass. I studied hotel restaurant management there. No and way. I played basketball. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. hold on so, a second. Uh, when, when were you there, if you don't mind sharing that? 75 to 79. Now, my freshman year, yeah. I barely played any varsity ball. Um, but uh, then following years, I, I played quite a bit. And I was there, you know, right right to 79. I think you were there only until 78 I was or there 77. from 75 to 78 did you play with alex eldridge and and i and did Derek claiborne, yeah, Derek and claiborne yeah in fact we're we're and you know what maybe you could do this we'll we'll take this offline but mike pyatt is up for um hall of fame umass basketball hall of fame and we're all writing letters to get him nominated uh and get him in the oh, umass I would hall love of that. fame so i would love that i absolutely have to show you this brad this was my very first published basketball picture that's alex eldridge is that Alex? 19, Boom. 1975, right? In the, wow. In the Curry Hicks cage. Cage. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I keep this That's... because this is where it all, literally all started. First published basketball picture. Wow, man. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I love that. Is that hilarious? So, um, yeah, so we, we have that, uh, that in common. There's a, there's a sequence of photos that, uh, that you ended up sending to me. So... The Knicks were playing the Lakers at Staples, and I'm at the game with Denzel, and Spike Lee is seated maybe 20 seats from us. Denzel's seats are more towards the basket, the baseline, and Spike was more towards half court. So mm -hmm. the Knicks win on a last second shot, I think by Nate Robinson, if I'm not mistaken. It's going back a few years, and, and Spike might have even had on a Nate Robinson Knicks jersey. So <laughs> Nate hits this shot, clock time expires, Spike comes running down the baseline, to Denzel and tries to get Denzel that he sticks his hand out to for Denzel to give him a pound and congratulate him on the Knicks win. Instead, Denzel leaves him hanging, puts his fingers up to his nose as if to say that stunk. So Spike puts his hand over to me and I give him five, right? You captured that sequence, Andy. Wow. in your photographs and sent that to me. I mean, in a series of like three photos, the whole thing. That's hilarious. And I have it on my wall. You know, when we, we're moving into a new house and I'm gonna, it's going to be in my office on my wall. It's a great series of photos. But I, the question I have for you, and I've, I've heard this come up in conversations that you've had with Magic and with Kobe. How do you anticipate a moment when Magic is going to go one way, everybody thinks he's going one way, and you know he's going another? Mm. How did you know Spike was running down that baseline mm. and that those were the pictures you would get? What, what is it about the anticipation that factors into your judgment about what you shoot? Great question, Brent. I mean, it's a multi-layered answer, but it, it, first and foremost, I have to eliminate all distractions, um, completely eliminate them. So I can't... I can't be talking to somebody next to me, a, you know, a TV guy or another photographer or a fan behind me or whatever. I have to be locked in 
you know, completely. I have to have peripheral vision so that when my, I'm looking through the, the viewfinder, the other eye is kind of seeing what's going on over here. Or I can quickly take my eye away from the viewfinder and see, you know, what's, what's happening, you know, on the bench or if a fan is going bananas or whatever's going on. You know, celebrities are a huge thing, as you know. Have to always know where the celebrities are, you know, get their reaction when, when that happens. There's a lot, of, lot happening. So if, there, if I have a distraction, um, I'm doing a disservice to my employer, <laughs> but to myself, because I need to be locked in. Uh, on the magic question, it took a long time for me to learn his game. Um, What's important to really understand the way I shoot, Brad, is I, I don't have the luxury of leaning on a motor drive. I can't push the trigger and 12 frames go off in a second and magic's coming up and I can just pick you know, a frame out of that as the picture. And that's not to denigrate any of my friends who do that and make you know, amazing you know, captures of moments. I'm limited to one picture every four seconds. I can only click the shutter one time and then I have to count to four and then I can shoot again because I'm tied into this huge system of strobes, these big flashes that are up in the catwalk that when I push my trigger, those strobes go off almost magically. Um, they expose the picture in that moment, but then they have to recycle their energy back up because they're very, they're just huge, powerful, you know, um, power packs. So you can't shoot, you know, quickly. Um, if you shoot once, you know, during that four-second period, you run the risk of literally blowing one of those strobe packs. And you developed some of that technology, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I helped. I helped to. Well, it was there before me. I mean, the the mm -hmm. the great Neil Leifer, the great John Zimmerman. You know, those guys actually instituted that back in the '60s. They figured out how to light really dingy, grossly lit <laughs> arenas like Boston Garden, the old Madison Square Garden with strobes. Um, Walter Yost, of course, you know, with his famous pictures that he did in many, many arenas. But I, I helped to, um, myself and, and others at NBA Photos, we helped to kind of refine it. And then we, we developed the, uh, we meaning NBA Photos, um, developed a multi-camera remote system where you can actually fire multiple cameras on that single burst of strobe, all controlled by a, a radio frequency, which is, quite frankly, I don't understand how it works. But it was developed by these MIT grads who figured it out, and we are indeed it for a couple of years, and now it's become the standard for 20 plus years. So I can shoot, you know, LeBron going up for a dunk from six or seven different angles, and then, by the way, the NBA then can sell that to six or seven different entities because it's not the same picture. It's the same moment, mm -hmm. but it's not the same picture. And that was all born out of Michael Jordan um, dunking like crazy back in the late 90s and the NBA wanting to be able to maximize the opportunities <laughs> of selling those dunks. So that's why we mm -hmm. developed that technology. Wow. Great and and maximize them. They have because oh, yeah. the uh, the game as we know has <laughs> has grown uh, you know worldwide. So I mentioned Andy Warhol at the top, who was famous for his Polaroids, and you have a really a funny. It's a brief story, but a very funny story about going to shoot Magic Johnson's first Converse commercial, and you walk in. <laughs> 
with the Polaroid cam. Could you mind just re- setting that up and retelling that story, Andy? Man, you you dug deep into the history. Um, <laughs> now I got it. This was this is a great story. Magic and I still laugh about this. So, I, I believe it was Magic's second year, which was essentially my rookie year, the year I really started shooting. Although I did shoot in his rookie year, and my first real kind of uh, serious uh, professional deal you know commercial shoot was a converse poster he was filming a commercial and this is the way it always works in my world that the athlete is is filming the the video or the the film commercial on a huge sound stage with like 900 people you know on the crew and there's little andy over here with like a, a seamless you know just begging for like five minutes you know to get with the guy to shoot the national ad you know the print campaign so it's always a throw-in, right? <laughs> always was, it always will be. Um, so with Magic, same scenario, you know, I go to the sound stage wherever it was, and they give me a little corner. And the art director um, had, had, had this incredible concept for this poster of sort of Magic sort of leaping over the world. So they were, you know, they didn't have Photoshop in those days, but he drew it out, and it was, it was cool. The Magic had to make this move, and that was the shot, and they were going to put the earth, you know, so um, I hired a stand-in who looked like him, same sort of, um, same height, kind of uh, same body, um, same, basically the same skin tone. And the way that we always worked back in the film days was that you'd have the stand-in and you would do multiple Polaroids. There was a Polaroid attachment to the, the 120 camera, which... At that time, I was using a Mamiya RZ, which was like a bigger format camera. Put the Polaroid back on, right? And you'd shoot some Polaroids, and you'd get everything nailed down. So when the athlete came in, you weren't wasting his time with dicking around with lighting, you know, and blah, 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 and posing. You pretty much knew where you wanted. Magic comes in, you know, super gregarious. Hey, Andy, what's going on? What are we doing? And uh, I'm like, well, you know, this is what I need you to do, Magic. And... You know, I showed him the Polaroid from the guy who did it and everything. And he gets in position and I and I go to I I go to do the Polaroid and, and he goes, Whoa, whoa, hold on, what what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, Well, I'm I need to do a Polaroid to see go oh no, he says, Hold on a second. <laughs> he goes, When I come on your set, we don't do Polaroids, okay? You be ready. <laughs> you be ready. You be ready. <laughs> like he looked right at with the finger, you know? Right. And and I'm like Okay, Mr. Johnson, never did a Polaroid again. That (laughs) was it. (laughs) So when I did my podcast with him at his office, he he literally fell out of his chair when I told him that. I watched that, man. I said, you literally could have ruined my career at that point. But, you know, I I was up (laughs) to it. (laughs) But, you know, um, your relationship, as I mentioned, with Magic uh, was really, really special. I mean, your careers paralleled one another in the the proliferation of the league. And, you know, you were just there through all of that, that... uh, those beautiful decades of basketball. And um, here's what Magic um, said. And your, and your podcast, by the way, Andy, is fantastic. I mean, not just for, for sports enthusiasts, which, which I am, but it's really great, man. You come fully prepared. You've had Jerry West, Kobe, Phil J. I mean, just all kinds of folks. And uh, it's really, you, really enjoyable. Yeah. Legends of sports. Um, but Magic said this about you, quote, his eye was really fantastic at knowing what he wanted, how he wanted it, and also what the fans wanted. And I think that's what made him such an incredible photographer and a guy who could take the best pictures. 
then Magic went on to say, there's this famous photograph, uh, Andy, you had uh, that you took of Bird and, uh, and Magic um, underneath a basket, right? And their arms interlocked. And it's really kind of metaphor, almost an allegory about the, their, their history and their story, right, together. Mm-hmm. And um, Magic said, that's so Andy, speaking of the photograph, quote, that's so Andy and so Larry and so I, because Larry and I will be linked together also because of this man here, mm-hmm. end quote, talking about you. Mm-hmm. So, man, what that's high praise, man, oh, from, yeah. from a pretty successful cat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that I mean, that, that, that just, it just blows my mind. Um, that a photograph, you know, David Stern actually said about that photograph, which was from the 87 finals where they're intertwined and neither guy is more dominant over the other, which is kind of unusual. Um, he said that 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 photograph helped define that era, you know, um, the Magic Bird era, which is amazing. Um, but to have Magic himself say that, to recognize that, um, you know, is high praise. I mean, I, it's almost embarrassing, but uh, it thrills me. It thrills me when, a, when an athlete um, actually notices, <laughs> um, actually, mm-hmm. you know, understands you know, Magic, Kobe, you know, the, the greats, they understand, they understood what it took for me. You know, it wasn't an accident that that picture happened. They understood my preparation. They understood what made me tick, what my Mamba mentality was, as we, you know, when, we, when Kobe and I started really collaborating. And, uh, you know, that means so much. I mean, I, I, I hope I got a few left in me, you know, for this new generation. <laughs> Uh, that's the challenge right now. You know, Adam Silver had a great quote. Um, he, he told me on the night of my uh, Hall of Fame award, he said, Andy, I think your best photos are in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> and that, with, with what that's Magic funny. said and what David Stern said, that, that is like fuel for me because that keeps, keeps me going. Yeah. You know, just going back to, to what Warhol said for a moment about, uh, you know, the, the photograph stays the same and the people change. You know, I mm. think about that iconic photo that you took of Michael Jordan in the locker room with his dad, mm. him crying over the trophy. His dad has his hand on Michael's arm and is looking at him intently. And of course, we know the the tragedy that, you know, soon followed after that. Mm-hmm. But how do you feel about that, Andy? I mean, pictures do capture a moment mm-hmm. that... Uh, gets to live on, right? As we get older, we look at what we used to look like or where we were, and th- there's a real significance there in, in capturing those kinds of moments. Oh, absolutely, Brad. I mean, a, a photograph is a moment in time that will never come back, right? You can't recreate it, you know, especially in sports, news, you know, photojournalism. It can't be recreated, and it helps to define all kinds of Things. I mean, if you think about the civil rights movement, you think about the Vietnam War, you think about, uh, you know, even if we if we look at, at the George Floyd tragedy and, and the fact that somebody was there actually recording it, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm just fortunate to have been put in a position and have earned the position with the NBA to have been part of this incredible ride um, with a league that, you know, when I started was... I think there were, you know, four people working in NBA properties, you know, now this, it's a worldwide conglomerate. Um, and to be sort of part of that story. Um, and, you know, Andy Warhol and Gordon Parks, I'm glad you mentioned Gordon Parks. He, there was an exhibition in New York, which, which I'm kicking myself that I didn't see when we were in New York recently, 
but you know what what he was able to to document uh, Howard Bingham you know my friend Howard mm -hmm. late Howard Bingham who was Muhammad Ali's personal photographer but more importantly his mm -hmm. friend um, you know if we didn't have Howard's photos we might not know Ali's story you know from from beginning to end um, you know with Kobe with me the same thing I mean there was so many things that happened behind the scenes that he was he was generous enough to trust me to document that now that he's no longer here, um, and uh, you know, who would have, how would we have known any of that stuff? Um, nobody yeah. saw it except me. <laughs> so thank God you, I had that opportunity and we were able to do our book together. You know, on, the, on Gordon Parks's quote about the uh, photograph is so much more important than the photographer, I know what he's saying and, and he has a similar or had a similar hum humility as, as you do. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're pointing your lens outward and your world is about focusing on what's going on out there, not what, you know, how people are perceiving you. Mm -hmm. But Kobe, Magic, these, these, these two... From what I get from watching your podcast, Andy, there was a unique bond and a unique relationship that you had with them. In fact, Kobe talked about your your iconic photo of Michael Jordan boxing out somebody. And for the poor guy he's boxing out, nobody I don't know who that was. Maybe you can recall. But yeah. Kobe describes in detail the the way that Michael was boxing this person out. And Kobe was twelve mm. and had that poster, right? Yeah. And, and your relationship with him, that you collaborate on this New York Times best-selling book. Um, I, I watched the broadcast of you two when you went to his office and, and talked with him. And he talked about how he studied your pictures and how that helped his game. Mm. Man, you said that no other player had ever really kind of elaborated about that to you. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, no other athlete anywhere had ever said to me that, that my photos helped them define their game, improve their game, whatever. Um, you know, when Kobe told me the very first time I met him, he was 18 years old at Media Day 1996, um, he said, well, I know who you are because I had all your posters in my room. You know, I, I sort of took that as, okay, that's cool. You know, his kids, you know, was a basketball fan, had my posters, but not until years later, I mean, he was still playing, so it had to be about 17, 18 years later where he started asking me for photos of what he called his muses, you know, Isaiah, uh, Magic, you know, even Bird, some of the big guys. And then I questioned him. I said, you know, what's up with that? He goes, well, I, I look at these pictures because they help me understand how they played the game so I can improve my game. So then it came full circle, like this what that that offhand comment that he made you know in 1996 he was at 12 years old he's studying it's not just a pretty picture of michael jordan dunking he's looking at michael's body language he's looking at michael's muscle tone he's looking at mm -hmm. his, his expression on his face everything he's breaking it down like a science experiment so when we the position we, of his arm against the other player's body absolutely oh that's right yeah so so that's how kobe learned how to play defense or learned how to box a guy out. So when we started doing our book together, and he wanted to, you know, the book is divided into process and craft. So he's talking about the craft part, the actual basketball, you know, playing part of the book. Um, he's breaking down photos like I had never seen before. You know, he, 
In fact, the very first picture in the craft section, <laughs> um, he's Ding up Michael Jordan and has his arm on Michael. And Kobe's caption that he wrote for the book said, everything I'm doing in this photo is wrong, right? Now, who would do that in their own book, first of all? But he wanted to teach a young basketball player, a coach, a parent, whatever, whomever, um, that I can see what I'm doing wrong in this picture, and I learn from it, right? Now, I'm looking at a picture of the young Kobe and, you know, the veteran Michael Jordan. I'm thinking, wow, that's a cool picture. You know, you got these two guys together. That's not how he looks at it. He looked at it as as breaking down everything going on, and then he he went and listed, like, the seven things that were wrong in that photo. <laughs> to the point, Brad, where we... We started making um, prints for him, like eight by 10 prints and giving him a Sharpie, right? And, and in the book, he actually, you can see it, we reproduced it in the book. He's writing and circling stuff on the photo and noting what's going on there. Like, where am I looking? Why am I looking here? Or see how this, you know, see how, you know, D. Wade took the fake and then I'm gonna go this way or whatever, you know? And, you know, the guys who were his defensive nemesis, the Bruce Bowens and the Sean Battiers, you know, he loved breaking down those guys' games because that's how he did it, through photos and video, of course. And this is a guy who watched, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of video. He'd be the only guy awake on the plane, you know, after a game and we're flying to another city. You know, it'd be one light on and it would be his and he's watching game tape. So... Just fascinating. You know, you know what else really touched me too, Andy, in, in your conversation with Kobe was, and Magic touched on this too, and it, this goes to the trust that, um, you know, that you, that these guys had with you um, that was, you know, really gained over the years. But he, he detailed how you set up, <laughs> you know, your ladder, your camera, how early you got to the arena, what, yeah. you know, it, he was watching you when you were watching him. And his his appreciation for your preparation mm. made him feel like you two spoke the same language automatically. And I think that that helped to, you know, really create that bond. Is is that uh, that accurate? Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy, because I, my biggest concern always is not to distract the guys, you know, not to not to stand out. You know, so the fact that he he's noticing like, I, oh, by the way, uh, you're Andy was here before I got here or that I'm out there putting my remote cameras up or whatever I'm doing um, just shows you how his radar was always up. You know, he was noticing mm -hmm. everything. Just, I might have thought he was locked in and he's just caring about what he's doing in the moment. But that wasn't the case. And that was uh, very revealing about him, to say the yeah. least. Yeah. I know it was a friend of yours, man. How do, you, how do you measure the impact of a Kobe Bryant? Well, like anybody, you know, who's important in your life, who, you know, who's no longer here, but even if they are, it, it's, it's how they impact everything in, in my life. You know, how um, the relationship... Um, made me a better person, how it might have made me a, a better at my craft, um, how that relationship influenced, you know, how I treat other people, because uh, they, they're, setting, they're setting an example. You know, magic always and still does treats people like they're the only person in the room. You know, he'll come in, he'll look you right in the eye, he'll shake your hand, he cares. You know, Kobe was the same way. Um, some athletes are not, <laughs> some celebrities are not that way. Um, but I really felt like he respected what I did. Um, 
magic as well, and a lot of people. I mean, I just want to single the two of them out. But, mm-hmm. um, and that means a lot because, uh, like I said, I like to just sort of be a fly on the wall most of the time. But when the athlete is recognizing, you know, that, like Kobe said to me, he said, I, I knew that we were going to be bonded because you're as crazy obsessed with what you do as with what I do, you know. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a lot of laughs about that during during the making of the book because I'd be showing him pictures and he knew exactly what he wanted to talk about in the book. My job was to find photos that supported what he wanted to write about. And that was a huge challenge. And uh, he would point out stuff in photos that I had no idea what was going on, you know. He, and like we're looking at a picture of Bruce Bowen, right? And he he's doing a move. He's making a move. It's a still picture, right? So he's making about to make a move on Bruce. He knew exactly when that happened, what point in the game that happened. He knew what happened after that photo. <laughs> you know, like, how do you remember? He goes, "Well, that's what that's what I do." <laughs> right. Yeah. He uh, he made that clear in, in the podcast that yeah. uh, there wasn't much room. Family, basketball, and basketball. Yeah. <laughs> that was about. Yeah. That was that was kind of his focus. So yeah. As we're starting to, to wind down a little bit, Andy, and you probably hate this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and mm-hmm. maybe you don't hate this question, but is there a favorite photograph of yours? I know Sports Illustrated was like the cover of Sports Illustrated yeah. was, a, was a lifelong goal for yours, but yeah. what, is there one photo that, that you would say this, this is the one? Well, yeah, I know, Brad. I mean, yes, I, get, I do get asked that a lot. Um, I kind of always point to the Michael Jordan holding the trophy photo from 91 his first championship if I'm remembered for one picture you know way down the line um you know Neil Leifer God bless him has probably photographed you know 500 iconic photos that we could all point to but if he's remembered Mm -hmm. for one picture generations from now it's the Ollie over Liston you know in 64 Mm -hmm. which literally is the most iconic sports photo ever taken um, if I'm remembered for one, it's got to be the Jordan holding the trophy. It just meant so much at yeah. that time. It meant a lot, but it, it's just taken on such a significance so many years later and six championships. And, you know, Michael, you know, this generation never saw Michael play. You know, Michael Jordan is like, mm-hmm. you know, Babe Ruth to them. So, you know, for all of us who <laughs> did see him play and even this generation of of, of players didn't play with Michael mm-hmm. Jordan you know every any there's no player in the NBA today who played with Michael Jordan so you know think about that that's <laughs> or played, or played about. against him wow yeah yeah and that's starting to happen with Kobe as well there's only a mm-hmm. handful of guys left mm-hmm. um, so that's that's my, my my long answer to your question <laughs> no good answer and and so Andy I'm curious with you know the proliferation of iPhones and you know every, at the end of every arm there's a phone these days with a camera yeah and you know the increased volume of photographs I mean we're going to be the generation that you know and from now into affinity that you know had over documents our lives does that make your job any harder to capture that photo you know no and I'll I'm thrilled that the whole world, really, every person on the planet who has a has a phone in their pocket, um, or in the pocketbook, or their glove compartment, or whatever, is is a photographer. I mean, you're seeing people in all walks of life in every society, pulling out their phone, taking beautiful pictures. You know, my wife, God bless her. You know, she's a lawyer, she's not a photographer, but she takes really cool pictures. You know, who who would have had that opportunity? 
during when I first started. You know, you had to mm-hmm. you had to invest in equipment. You had to learn photography. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole other conversation with the fact that you know there's now been a, a shortcut to becoming a photographer. But I love it. I love the fact that mm-hmm. my you know my 13 year old when she was two knew how to operate an iPhone literally and take pictures of flowers and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But from my standpoint, and the rest of us who do this professionally, hasn't really changed much, honestly. I mean, the technology has changed 180 degrees, of course, but I still approach my craft, I approach my job, my profession, the way I shoot games exactly the same way that I did you know, 40 plus years ago when I started out. I still prepare, I, you know, mm-hmm. I think about my craft that way, you know, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's more immediate. I can see what I shot in the moment. Um, it takes kind of the fun out of the anticipation of waiting for film to get developed, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I it used to drive me crazy, but I actually miss that. Um, you know, there's a lot of like self gratification right now in the moment. Oh yeah, I just got that picture or, you know, guess what? I just missed that picture. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people look, looking over my shoulder now that I didn't have before. Like my my cameras are all tethered back to an editor in New Jersey. So literally, as I take a photo of of LeBron dunking, the editor is receiving it probably three seconds later, wow. <laughs> before LeBron has even gone back down the court. That, I mean, crazy, the editor is editing it and captioning it and getting it out to the world. We didn't have that back mm-hmm. in the day. But again, I approach my craft exactly the same way as I did in day one. So, Andy, of the of the young crops, young crop of players now, I think of a guy like Ja Morant as mm. somebody that a, must be a photographer's dream. Do you do you who do you like? Who do you have your eye on? I'm glad you mentioned him because my first experience with Ja Morant was uh, he he came into what was then Staples Center, played again. I think it was against the Clippers in his rookie year, and he went up for a dunk, and I cut his head off. Because I didn't expect this dude to go up that high. He literally, his head was, you know, the box around, the, you know, behind the basket. Yeah, behind the, the square. You know, his head was in the box. I mean, I had no idea. And uh, so I learned my lesson with him. I mean, he's, he's a thrill. I wish I got to shoot him. My good friend Joe Murphy is the Grizzlies team photographer. And I, I just salivate every time I see photos that Joe shoots. Because I remember... You know, the young Kobe, you know, Kobe was a dunk machine in his early years. Mm-hmm. And I just remember how wonderful that was shooting him every game. Um, yeah. but, you know, Ja, amazing. Um, yeah, I still love shooting Steph Curry. Wouldn't call him, you know, the, the new crop. He's kind of part of the, the, old, the old new crop. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have LeBron, of course, in front of my lens in year 19, mm-hmm. which is insane. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I get to shoot Mellow. I... I didn't really get to shoot Mello that much in his career, um, which is wonderful. And one of my favorite players ever is Russell Westbrook. I mean, his game for a photographer is is like a dream to, you know, to have that gift. So it's fun. And then, you know, I can't forget about my Clippers. I mean, you know, Paul George, one of my favorite players. I was there when Paul had that horrific, you know, broken leg incident mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to see him come back. And, uh, you know, I love shooting the Clippers and, and being around that team. So I'm blessed, man. I, I'm blessed that uh, that these guys just somehow they just keep getting better <laughs> and more athletic. And that's a challenge yeah. for me to, you know, stay sharp and stay, stay mm-hmm. focused, as we talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, lucky for us, those that love the sport get to continue to enjoy it. So, 
Andy, I mean, you, you have access to the championship locker room and in some cases the, the team who lost. Um, floor seats for an NBA game is a thrill even for non-NBA mm-hmm. fans, but you are literally sitting on the floor. <laughs> so my, my, my final question for you, how cool is your job? Well, I've had people tell me it's a pretty cool job, you know, it, and it is. I got to say it is. And, and it's a, it, for guys, mostly guys say, wow, you got the cool. I mean, I have a pretty good job, but you got the coolest job. And I've had some pretty influential guy friends tell me that. <laughs> um, but bottom line, Brad, it's a job. You know, I, mm-hmm. I have to I have to produce. I have to stay and continue to produce at, at an extremely high level or else there's a lot of young guns out there that, uh, you know, waiting to take my place. I, I know that I work for some great people at the NBA. Um, my direct boss, Joe Amati, who I've been working with over 30 years. He's, he's wonderful. He, he has given me the liberty to, to actually work less games this year. So I stay fresher and sharper um, I don't get fatigued from traveling, all that stuff. Um, and I'm grateful they still want me around, man. What can I say? <laughs> They're smart people. The podcast is Legends of Sport. And uh, I think we can see it on YouTube and mm-hmm. hear it uh, at iHeart. Mm-hmm. Uh, the host is my esteemed yesterday, Andy Bernstein. Andy, I'm a huge fan of your work, the podcast, and of you, the man. So thanks so much for taking the time today, man. I really appreciate it. Brand, it's so great to just connect with you, man. But on this platform, which which I adore, I, I think you do a great job. And uh, so great to talk to you, man, and see you. I hope that I see you courtside soon. You got to tell Denzel to come back. I know he's been busy doing other things, but he's got to come back and bring you with him at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, from from your from your mouth to his ears. <laughs> Andy Bernstein, thank you so much, man. See you soon. Thanks, Brad. Yep. So welcome, everyone, to the segment of our program we call How We Move. My dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz, looking lovely this afternoon. What's happening, Ambassador? It's all happening. It's happening fast. (laughs) (laughs) Coming at you quick, huh? Yeah, I'm trying to keep up. I don't know if giggled biloba or whatever, kale, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Quicker than a... Then a photographer snaps his uh, his his camera on on automatic fire. What did he say? Something that he can get do four every some odd seconds or something. Yeah, you know what killed me is that he said he could take a picture of LeBron dunking, and it would be in New Jersey being developed before LeBron crossed uh, crossed half court. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's that new technology, right? Yeah, I mean, man. I'm a photographer, I don't I don't know how to use that rapid fire stuff. I still like to feel the camera in my hand, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I've gotten into the digital camera, but I actually like to be part of the process. So I'm still kind of old school about it, but I love knowing and watching them own that's what i loved listening to him about he just owned it he when he mm-hmm. said he could not be distracted there was no room he's mm-hmm. living in the moment of each thing in motion the peripheral mm-hmm. the circumference you know the 360 degrees um that was cool and i got it i understood being yeah. in his own you know yeah. and we are you know what really touched me too yeah what really touched me too was you know you think of guys like kobe and magic as being you know i mean obviously they've got a lot to focus on playing at, at such a high level in front of you know 
thousands of people and in some cases, millions of people. But the intimate bond that they formed with Andy and the trust and yeah. the the respect for how they saw, you know, he him prepare for his job. I, I was really touched by that. Well, but he lives it, right? So when someone is that authentic, no matter who, what, when, and, they, and their job is not just merely employment, but it is really their soul's voice, right? It's the way they communicate and capture and translate, transmit, pass it on to us. Um, you get to almost feel like they're not in the room. You, your trust surrenders so much that you don't feel like you have to pose for a shot. You mm-hmm. trust that they'll catch you in your best, um, which right. is really, really great. And I think about my father had a photographer, Robert Haggins. I mean, many people ph- photographed him, but Robert mm-hmm. Haggins actually left his job at the Post to come spend time with my dad and got the shots that mattered, the shots that were not going to distort his image. And so me growing up with the likes of Gordon Parks, who is my sister's godfather, and or Richard Avedon, who was a fashion photographer, but also kind of bordered activism, you know, and capturing images and people. And um, is Monita Sleet, who is known for those iconic shots that we'll forever know in the Chronicles of Ebony magazine. Uh, Pete Souza, who um, Adam Bern- uh, Andrew Bernstein, Pete Souza, who Mr. Bernstein acknowledged, mm-hmm. um, and notwithstanding Howard Bingham, whom I knew personally as well, and as a buddy alongside Ali. And they were thick as thieves. Certainly he chronicled everything captured on film, but they were brethren. They were soul brethren. And to get to experience imagery from pre- Ali, pre-Muhammad Ali days. I mean, he captured him in the clay day, right? It was really quite powerful, their union and what we get to see forever after through all of these photographers and more, uh, notwithstanding Andrew Bernstein. Yeah, let me let me ask you, when you, when you look at, because we touched on this, and uh, I think it was Gordon Parks who had said this, I had quoted him about, um, you know, people change, but the, the, the photograph remains. When you look at uh, old photographs, I know you were very close with Howard Bingham and, and yes. also the Ali and his family. And, you know, when you look at photographs of your dad, your mom, you know, the, the folks that have come in and out of your life, that the still moments that got captured, what, what, what does that conjure for you? Is there is do you feel differently every time you look at those photos? Do you do you not like to look at them? Do you love looking at them? How do you how do you feel? I, I think the heart that takes the right photograph is something you can always live with. I mean, it takes you right to the moment and that time. I remember saying to Harry Belafonte when he was turning fifty, because we know he just turned ninety-five, he's turning fifty, and I was and I said to him, he looks handsome. You know, he was t- I was saying, you look great at 50. He says, oh, no, I don't like taking pictures. I said, look, my father's older than you are. He said, but your father looks good in his shots. Because my <laughs> father, <laughs> you know, sad as it may be, my father's last photo, he was 39. So he was immortalized mm-hmm. as a young mm-hmm. man. Right. So I had not thought about that because my dad is my dad is my dad. But mm-hmm. um, it's like how people see themselves and how they want to be captured. <laughs> and, then, and then letting go to simply be captured, to entrust someone to photograph you. I don't like being photographed, but I'm a photographer myself. So I can 
shoot and not invade. I love to get in feelings and images that are not posed, um, that are moments and movements in a person's experience in, in that a given time. But I don't like being in front of the camera at all. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if Andrew Bernstein can pose for a shot, you know, when you <laughs> live in it to capture others, you know? And I think that's the difference. You know, I, I would imagine that most photographers don't want to be in front of the camera at all. You have Tasha. My dad was a photographer as well. And while he was captured, he also would rather, you know, not be in the shot. Once he was done, he would always mm -hmm. kind of wave his hand and say, okay, we're, we're on. We're off to another thing. But um, I love when he made the, he had the quote. I love when he quoted, don't let anybody blow out your light. He shared that with his children. Wow, that's like really big. And I think we all need to ask ourselves, what does that mean for <laughs> for 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 one another? Um, and how do you protect that? How do you identify what your light is so that you can protect it so that you make sure that no one, you know, blows it out? I mean, that's a real toughie. That takes me to people in my life right now as they're trying to discern how to take care of their souls. And these are people in charge of many, whether it's households or in their positions professional positions, tuning out of social media, shutting it off for a minute, um, leaving their phones somewhere else, turning off their computer, not checking their LinkedIn. And a few people recently have asked me how I can help them go someplace where they can not blow out their light, <laughs> right? Or to recharge mm -hmm. their light. Mm -hmm. um, and one person, while he was it, with the correspondence was um, online, I had to dial him because I could feel the cry through the social media, through the mm -hmm. medium online and to have a conversation. Say, it's OK to want to go someplace. It's OK to shut down. It's OK to recharge and it's OK to do it alone. So you come from a family and you're responsible for so many other people. You can actually treat yourself to this. And I'd be happy to determine where you wake up and how you um end your day and how you fill mm -hmm. those three or four days to do that. And another person just buried two parents, neither expected, and is in charge of a quite a large mission, um, not just employees, but has a lot of, at stake and just needs to take off a week. And I said, if we can't take off a week and allow our staff and team, you have the wrong team, right? You, you really need to not feel like you can't let go for a minute. And so who do you have around you as you're part of your support system? You know, um, so what do you do to shut down? You know, I, I, I think I try to just grab moments during the day. I don't I don't know that I can ever successfully, you know, completely disengage days on end. I, I enjoy feeling my feet on the ground and, and you know, that I'm that I'm, you know, making progress towards what I'm doing. But I, I am, you know, to your point. I'm trying to focus more on on the journey rather than the end goal as the objective, and I think that's a big help. But you know, I wanted to I wanted to go back um, to to something that uh, that came up when when you were talking a little bit there, and I want to connect self image to you know when I think of you know the era that uh, your dad. Uh, had his had his picture taken so often, and you know, of course, Ali. Um, it's amazing to me that Harry Belafonte ever felt he could take a bad picture, which you know, <laughs> one of the most handsome guys of all time. How self-image is cultivated these days on social media, right? We we show the best angle, the best time, 
the best night, the best, you know, everything. And it, and it's not a true depiction. And for others who are gazing at us through that lens, you know what, it, it, uh, if that's the image that you, if you're trying to always show, you know, just how great your life is and how good you look in the perfect light, it's, it's not, it's not a true reflection of life. No, nor is it intended to be maybe, but I guess that's how photography has kind of changed a little bit in terms of self-perception. I think now it's more cosmetic as opposed to capturing the soul, the movement, the engagement, the interaction, right? So now, I mean, people, it amazes me how many people can be caught off guard and still do that thing over the shoulder with the pouty lip. I'm just thinking, that's good. You know, you catch me, I got an eye closed. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm ducking. You can see me like with a blur. So what's she trying to escape the shot? You know, I think people are learning, though. They're pausing. I think they're they're feeling the overwhelming consumption of engagement. I think people are learning to because some of the people that are saying to me, I was I, I signed off for a few days are actually young people um, as well. They just needed to, like, not be bothered and not tune in, not determine how many likes they have based on people they don't know. You know, so how do people treat themselves because the young lady I had dinner with last night said, my team is great. They can do it. Can I not check in? Can mm -hmm. I take this downtime and not check in with my office? Mm -hmm. So how do we entitle ourselves to those moments of pause? I mean, she's going to try to take a week off. She needs it. But when you talk about grabbing parts of your day, I think we all need to figure that out. It's like people who stop and start or end or start their day with a meditation. It's like, that's it. Uncle Ruby and Uncle Ossie, no matter what time they got up, you didn't see them until they saw each other. How's that? Until they saw each other, until they broke bread, until they had breakfast together. Breakfast could be 8 a.m., could be 11 a.m., but they didn't engage the world until they fellowshiped with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's just determining where you need your, your ground zero to be fortified so that you can engage the rest. You know, there's a place in Cincinnati that I had come across, and it's not too far from where I am. I haven't been there myself. It's called Grace and Grit. Online, it would be graceandgritskin.com. And it's just a regional spa, happens to be Black-owned. They call themselves Spa with a Purpose. And what I loved is that they also had a component that addressed those who who are either themselves suffering from cancer or, or surviving with cancer. And they also do it for the caregivers. So they call it warriors and caregivers for those who are surviving the journey of cancer. And they offer the whole spa treatment and they just language it as what love does. That's the category mm -hmm. on their website. And so if you can find those balances that it's not just for the one that's ailing, but for the one loving the one that's ailing and how the restoration has to be cyclical amongst us so that we can all be healthy enough to support one another. So, and what's it called? It's called Grace and Grit. There are a few, there's another Grace and Grit in South Carolina that's a restaurant. Mm -hmm. This is Grace and Grit, spelled out fully, skin.com, graceandgritskin.com. And, uh, you know, it's just, again, I'm just exploring things online that I want to journey to and listening to young people create these initiatives in the last couple of years and um, getting their degrees in Ayurveda, or certifications in Ayurveda or as masseuse, reflexologists, things that they didn't plan on before now, but we're realizing the soul needs to be touched somehow, or 
the other. So I just, I really dig what they're doing. Well, before we, um, we sign off, um, since we were on the subject of photography with, uh, with Andrew Bernstein, I'm wondering, is there, is there a picture, a photograph that uh, is dear to you that, uh, that you think of as maybe one of your, your favorite shots of, uh, of a scene, of a person, of an experience that, uh, that conjures up something nice for you? For an individual, do you mean personal or or, or just anything? Personal? Any any image that comes to mind? I know again that you and you and Howard Bingham, who cracked me up on a regular basis whenever <laughs> you brought him around, he was just a, a great guy. But I know he took some just phenomenal. I mean, Ollie was hard to not capture in a magical way because he was just such a magical guy. But you know, when hanging around Bingham, does anything come to mind of yours that uh, or, or any photographs that you remember that uh, would stand out for you? I wouldn't say single photos because I love black and whites. I love sepia. I, I mix mm -hmm. those when I'm working on images myself. I'll take a photo, a color photograph and move the colors around um, to see, do I feel it more in color or mm -hmm. is it, does the information transmit better in black and white? So what I loved with Howard Bingham, he would always say that he loved standing in the distance to watch other people with Ollie. And every now and then you'll see if most people don't know what Howard Bingham looks like, but every now and then, then he's Waldo in the shot. Somebody <laughs> else caught him. Right. 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 And you're watching this other young baby face and you were, what brought the two of them together to be so inseparable that they departed this earth in the same year, one in June, one in December. And we figured just like, people who are just mated hmm. that they were what was the purpose to stay i mean he has children and grandchildren but we knew he was heartbroken because hmm. i think they were together from 61 you know and their whole lives highs and lows were together so i can't think of a single shot but i just know because i've lived in and around some of these moments that were captured it just hmm. takes me to a place as if it were in that moment well, as someone who have seen who has seen many photographs of you, I can attest to the fact that I have never seen you take a bad picture. Oh yeah, you're just saying that because you like me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I do not lie. Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. We know how you move. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. We'll talk soon. Bye bye. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production. <laughs>